Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the FT Money Show, brought to you by Investors Chronicle and FT Money. Hello and welcome to the FT Money Show. I'm Richard Anderson from Investors Chronicle. And I'm Charlene Goff from FT Money. And together, we'll be bringing you this week's financial lowdown in downloadable form. From beside the River Thames this week, uh, I'd like to say, because the weather was so beautiful, but uh, unfortunately we couldn't actually get into the studio. So, uh, shivering aside, Charlene, what have we got on the show this week? Well, today we're really fighting the consumer cause and revealing dodgy business practices. Coming up, we ask why mortgage providers are claiming that they've scrapped exit fees when in fact they're simply renaming them, whether investment trust boards will keep their promises in buying back shares, and how you can avoid getting stitched up when paying with credit or debit cards overseas. And if you've got a subject you'd like us to tackle, you can email your questions to ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com. But first, we're going to take a quick look at insurance premiums, which have shot up in the wake of recent floods. So, Charlene, what's been going on? Well, at the end of last week, we saw Norwich Union, the biggest um, home insurance provider, increase the prices of its policies by 10%. That basically has come in the wake of the, of the recent flooding, but it's not just for people who have been hit by the floods, it's across the board. So even if you're living in a sixth-floor flat in London, you could end up paying more for your home insurance. And how on earth can they justify that? Well, they've said that they were reviewing their prices already and that they were planning to put them up. They said prices have remained pretty unchanged for the last 10 years, um, so they're well, we're well in need of an increase. But um, insurance brokers are saying that you know, they, they are having to pay out a huge amount for flood damage, and that's likely um, having a big impact on the decision to raise prices. Exactly. Yeah, it all sounds a bit too convenient. So we've talked about Norwich Union. Are there any other big names that are going to follow suit? Well, no one's actually said anything officially, but insurance brokers do expect a number of other big insurers could also put their prices up. But um, it could also be a, an opportunity for some of the smaller providers to undercut Norwich Union and, um, and, and basically reduce um, or make their, their products more competitive um, to try and win a, a bigger share of the market. So what should people do if they've suddenly been uh, landed with a massive premium, especially if they don't live anywhere near water, let alone floods? 
Well, really, there's, the market is so competitive. There's lots of opportunities to get a better deal elsewhere. Um, no insurer can put up the price when you're within a contract. It's really at the end of the contract. So if you see a big uh, jump in your premiums, you should contact an insurance broker or look online where you can pr- probably find a cheaper deal. And remember, you can get all the latest money news at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come in the programme... Will investment trusts buy their own shares to stop prices falling? And why you need to think twice before paying with a card on holiday? But first, the FSA has been putting pressure on lenders to scrap these charges. And while many have done so, others have just renamed these fees or introduced other new charges in their place. Richard spoke with Ray Bolger at John Charcoal Mortgage Brokers to find out more. Ray, I guess it's pretty self-explanatory, but could you just uh, explain exactly what exit fees are? The exit fee is a fee that a lender charges when you finally redeem the mortgage, not to be confused with early repayment charges, which relate to charges if you redeem during a deal period. Lenders have a variety of names for exit fees, but colloquially, most of us in the industry refer to them as exit fees. And are they always made pretty clear when you, at the outset when you, when you first take out your mortgage? This has been part of the problem. If a lender charges an exit fee, they have to state it on the key facts illustration. However, until the Financial Services Authority made a comment in January, lenders were often increasing their exit fee between the time when somebody took out a mortgage and the time they redeemed it. And what the FSA have said is that although lenders can do that, they can only do it if they make it clear how any increase will be calculated. So lenders now must either charge the exit fee they quote when somebody takes out a mortgage, or if they want to charge more, they have to state clearly how any increase will be calibrated. So this is the problem the FSA has. Presumably they don't have a problem with exit fees per se, it's just the fact that they can change during the period of the mortgage. Well, the FSA has two problems, really. One is that they can change. Um, the, The other is that they haven't in the past really had borne much relation to what they're supposed to cover. So what the FSA says is any fees must be reasonable in relation to the cost of whatever service they're meant to provide. Now, most people don't believe that it costs lenders over £200 in admin charges and admin costs when you redeem the mortgage. So that's the other part of the problem. So what exactly have the FSA told lenders to do? The FSA has given lenders uh, a number of options. One is to charge no exit fee. Two is to state clearly on the KFI, the key facts illustration, how much the exit fee is, and if the lender wants the option to increase it, to state how that will happen. Um, And the third is simply to charge whatever exit fee they originally quoted. I've got to bear in mind here that people will be redeeming mortgages that were taken out before the FSA started regulating mortgages. So some people have had old-style illustrations rather than the new-style KFI. And if you took out a mortgage several years ago, it is very probable that either there was no exit fee at all quoted on the illustration, or if there was one quoted, it would have been much smaller than today's figures. So are lenders actually listening to the FSA and doing what they're asked? Lenders have no choice. The FSA is the regulator, and... Uh, if you don't do what you're told, then you get more than a wrap over the knuckles. So that's why we saw um, a lot of announcements towards the end of July from lenders stating what they were going to do, because the FSA gave lenders until July the 31st to tell them what they were going to do in terms of exit fees. 
It sounds like some haven't been uh, particularly upfront as they could have been. Um, I've heard some examples of, of mortgage lenders simply renaming the exit fee but actually not changing it or scrapping it at all. Is that right? Um, that's absolutely right. Uh, essentially, lenders have, in the main, done one of three things. Some have scrapped the exit fee completely, and although the number of lenders who've done that is relatively small, the, the amount of new mortgage business that's written by the lenders who've done that is actually about 50% of all new mortgage business. So that's obviously a very significant chunk of the market. Um, the second category have reduced their exit fee, in most cases to somewhere in the range of £125 to £145, and that suggests that they feel comfortable justifying to the FSA that that is roughly what their costs are in redeeming a mortgage, but they would not have been comfortable trying to justify a higher figure. Um, other lenders have done, as you um, mentioned in your question, they've actually abolished the exit fee but replaced it with another fee, which in most cases just happens by pure coincidence to be exactly the same as the previous exit fee. Interestingly, one lender that did that, Yorkshire Building Society and their subsidiary Accord, who originally abolished the exit fee of £199 and replaced it with a mortgage administration fee of the same amount, two days later, after they'd seen what other lenders were doing, cut that fee from £199 to £90, which again tends to suggest that these fees are what the lender thinks they can get away with rather than based on anything else. What, uh, what other areas are they going to look to, to to recoup some of these fees? The margins lenders have on mainstream mortgages are pretty skinny. Now, I don't expect anybody to shed any tears for them, but that is actually a fact. So if they lose, on average, £200 per case, they are definitely going to look for ways to recoup that. The main options are going to be either to increase an existing fee, perhaps the arrangement fee, or to introduce a new fee, or to increase the interest rate slightly. Now, on the basis of the average exit fee and the average life of a mortgage, which is about three and a half years, if they were to recoup the lost revenue by way of an additional interest rate, I calculate that on average would mean they would have to put the interest rate up by five basis points, 0.05%. Um, That just gives one an idea of how much impact it might have. So it's not a huge cost for consumers, but I think the big win for consumers is that things will now be much more transparent. They won't necessarily end up paying any less. That was Ray Bolger at Charcoal. And to find out more about mortgages, visit ft.com forward slash your home. You're listening to the FT Money Show. Coming up, how to save money when spending abroad. But before that, we take a look at the conundrum facing investment trust boards. A couple of weeks ago, we reported how trust discounts have been widening since the beginning of the year. Well, now they've got so wide that many boards, I think about 50 in fact, may soon be forced to buy back shares to stop discounts widening any further. But who would buy shares back in a falling market? And will boards keep their promises or not? John McLeod spoke with Mick Gilligan at Broker Killick & Co. to find out. So Mick, um, around 50 investment trusts have taken on discount control mechanisms to enable them to use share buybacks and so on to try and control discount volatility, but discounts seem to keep, keep widening out, so would you say that the discount control mechanisms simply don't work? Well, I think um, it remains to be seen whether uh, they were. I think there will be specific cases where they will, um, but it very much depends on the underlying assets. So, for example, where you have illiquid underlying assets, um, for example, property, then it becomes more difficult for the fund manager to, to control the cash, to, you know, to liquidate properties 
to, to be used in order to, uh, to buy back shares in order to meet the uh, discount level that they've, they've sort of set for themselves. Um, so uh, I, I think um, it's going to be more difficult with, with the illiquid asset classes like real estate and private equity. Um, but I think for the more liquid, like large cap equities, um, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to uh, maintain the, the, the discounts that they've set for themselves, the discount levels. The, the standout example would be uh, an investment trust called Personal Assets, uh, managed by Ian Rushbrook. And this is an example of a trust that has consistently bought back stock at very tight discounts, typically 2 or 3%, and has consistently issued stock at premia of around 2 to 3%. And despite the fact that it sits in a sector where it has probably been one of the, the, the worst performers on a relative basis because the fund manager has been quite cautious in a, in a rampant bull market. Um, so relative performance doesn't look fantastic, yet it has managed to maintain a very tight discount because the market knows that it will not tolerate uh, a wide discount. Okay. And with the FNC Commercial Property Trust, they're... Um They've actually, they, they may be forced to schedule an, an extraordinary general meeting if the discount remains above 5% for 90 days. Um, do you think it's a risk that, that trust will be, will, will be wound up? I, I don't think there's, there's a, much of a risk that it will be wound up entirely. Um, I think they've got a few weeks to go from here before they're in, completely in breach of the, the discount control mechanism that they, they laid out. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's unlikely they will get the discount back to where it needs to be within a couple of weeks. Um, however, the reason I don't think it would wind up completely is that uh, primarily because Foreign and Colonial um, own over 50% of the vehicle, and I would be very surprised if they voted um, for, for a wind-up. Um, what may be more likely is that there is some sort of tender or some sort of change to the way they're doing things around the discount just to appease um, some of the other shareholders. And in general, do you think that, that buybacks are the best way to deal with widening discounts, or are there other factors that could come into play as well? Um, I think there are a number of factors. I think there's nothing better than getting a good shareholder register at the outset. Um, and what I mean by that is long-term investors who are clear on what the fund manager's objective is and are uh, committed to, to sitting with them long-term, um, although that's clearly easier said than done. But I think one, one point I would want to make is that I think that uh, for boards to focus too much on buy, buybacks as a means of controlling discount is, is missing the point. I think the main point of buying back stock is to enhance the asset value for investors. Um, and if I just use a very simple example, if you had a trust that only held one asset, which was Vodafone, 100%, uh, and let's say Vodafone was trading in the market at £1.50 um, and the trust was on a 10% discount, then why would they not sell some Vodafone at 1.50 and effectively buy it back at, um, you know, at, at £1.35 um, to enhance the NAV? So that's a very simplistic example. But you have got a number of trusts out there with very liquid portfolios that could do that and consistently add um, value by enhancing the NAV every time they, just, they buy back and cancel some shares. That was Mick Gilligan at Killick & Co. And finally today, with the pound being so strong, you may think you can go away this summer 
and enjoy a nice European break without having to think too much about what you're spending. But actually, we found out that lots of shops and restaurants are actually setting their own exchange rates, which are unlikely to be very favourable for you. So you'll end up out of pocket when you pay with your credit or debit card overseas. I spoke with Steve Lodge to find out more. So what's the problem here for travellers then? There are a confusing range of charges for using cards abroad, um, but this one is actually a charge levied by retailers rather than the card company. So, so you mean the retailer is actually charging the customer for using their card? No, it's not, Charlene. It's not that sort of traditional thing where they say, oh, we're going to charge you 2% for taking that card because they've got exchange costs. With this one, they're actually imposing a conversion charge. Strangely, they're claiming to offer you a service, charging you in pounds, um, but then what they're really doing is giving you a not necessarily very good exchange rate. Oh, I see. And how much can this cost customers then? Well, it can vary between retailers, but typically up to 4%. And at worst, some people say that some uh, transactions have been hit by as much as 7%. Um, what, can, what can people do to get around this? Well, you're meant to be given the choice um, with these so-called dynamic currency conversion retailers. Um, there's a mouthful. Um, between paying in the local currency, which is the normal way, and just letting a card company do the conversion back to sterling or paying in sterling there and then and then being hit by this extra charge. Um, most experts say that you're actually normally better off paying in that local currency and letting your card company do that conversion. Um, would you say that's always the case? Well, most cards charge 2.75%. DCC typically costs you up to 4%, so generally speaking, you're better off taking the card conversion rate. However, it's not always the case, and there could be instances where your card company imposes a particularly high fee for currency conversion that you're actually better off paying in sterling and taking that DCC whack. But, but I guess as it's, um, some, you know, lots of people don't actually know exactly what the ch these charges are likely to be, it's probably safer for them just to stick with paying in euros or dollars. For more on all aspects of financial planning, visit ft.com forward slash your money. And that's it for this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you can email your views and your questions to ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com. And we'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form, hopefully back inside the studio. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. The FT Money Show team and our producers, Blue Barracuda. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.